The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Feels like our first fall night. The temperatures drop. It's always something poignant about gathering and um, it's good. You know, it's, it's interesting as people interested in this practice, it's interesting how we hold it. For some of you, uh, it's quite, it might feel quite natural to have a, a sense of gratitude, even a sense of the practice being sacred and you might even feel at times a kind of devotional energy, protective energy about your practice, really wanting to protect it. And then other people might think that's a bunch of hocus pocus and, you know, this is a scientific thing and we're just learning how to manage our life by getting our mind disciplined and so it doesn't waste its time worrying when we don't need to worry or judging when we don't need to judge. The one thing that people seem to find, people who've been doing the practice for a while, that it's really helpful from time to time. I mean, you could make it even a daily practice, but at least from time to time, we have to step back a little bit and reflect about the practice and what's of value and what's worthy of our devotion and our trust, what's worth, what do we have confidence in. And it has to be something here and now, not something like somebody out there or something out there. What is it here that we trust? What value values do we have around the practice that when push comes to shove, when life gets really difficult, heavy, then the mind has a refuge something to turn to, something to connect with. Another way I think about this, I mentioned that this this morning, for those, some of you were there this morning, but it's like uh, if a very sincere young adult were to come up to you, a 19-year-old, let's say, really sincere though, and said, you know, I, I just respect you. You seem to have learned something in your life about what it is to be a human being and how to be happy. So I'm asking you to share. What have you learned about the causes for happiness and the causes for unhappiness? What can you share? What would we say to somebody like that? It would be nice to have something to say to them. One of the teachings from the tradition, from the Buddha, is around right attitude. And this is something we can bank on because I'm guessing everybody knows what I'm about to say. Everybody knows that it's true. That the value or the attitude of letting go, letting go of attachment or letting go of the mind's fixation, when our mind is holding tight to an opinion, to some kind of stance, 
some kind of identification or attachment. Most of us, you know, we have intuition, we have an understanding that tightness of the attachment isn't helpful. It actually gets in the way of living skillfully, being happy, being a good human being. So whether you call it generosity or you call it letting go or you call it non-attachment, but there is this value about renunciation, the renunciation of what's fixed, the renunciation of certainty, right? I mean, we can pretend we're certain, but actually when it, what turns out to be true is we can be certain to let go, that letting go of certainty is a good thing. Who knows? Who knows? So we stay a learner in that way. We stay open. The mind stays open and interested precisely because we've let go of thinking that we're going to get the answer. I mentioned this earlier today to someone that no matter how the mind conceives it, like no matter what story your mind tells yourself about what's going on, who you are, what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong, no matter how your mind conceives it, it will always be other than that. The conception we construct, the mind constructs, the story the mind tells, the opinion the mind clings to, will never be the truth, never be right. So you can just check this out. This is one of the three wise attitudes, or one of the three wise intentions. The Buddha says, naturally flows out of wisdom. Wisdom arises from paying attention in this balanced way. And then paying attention in a balanced way with some continuity just strengthens these three values. The value of letting go, or sometimes called the joy of letting go, the joy of renunciation or generosity. There's the value or the intention, the attitude of kindness. And there's the attitude of compassion. And when there's wisdom in the mind, then these are the motivating forces that follow from wise view, from wisdom. We're... There are these intentions to let go, to be kind, to be compassionate. And if you find, just in examining your own experience, observing your mind, that just in terms of karma, what gets set in motion, that these attitudes always set in motion something that's healing, something that's good, something that we can bank on, doesn't cause us or anybody any harm, then why wouldn't we become devoted to them? Why wouldn't we learn how to orient our life around them? You know, in the same way that uh, if I gave you very specific instructions where you could find a hundred solid gold coins on your way out of the building that you know they're in a garden you see this plant go three feet this way lift up the rock and there's going to be a hundred gold coins you'd listen very carefully to the instructions and at your first opportunity you'd follow them right and then you'd get your reward 
So basically, the Buddha and our many teachers have been saying things like that. You know, if you cultivate a heart that lets go, if you really invest, develop, set in motion this attitude of letting go, of renouncing fixation, renouncing certainty, renouncing attachment, you're going to be really happy. And if you cultivate, if you learn how to recognize and water the seeds of kindness in all the little ordinary ways many times through the day, you're going to get really happy. And if you notice and cultivate compassion, this commitment to non-harming, taking responsibility in this interconnected world to not set emotion harm, not repeat, not act out, you know, how we're all participating in the suffering, but to commit moment by moment to teasing out more and more of the ways we participate in the suffering that we set emotion suffering, then we're going to be really happy. So either we don't believe it, you know, or just as sort of neurotic, we think, well, yeah, I do believe it, but I'm busy. I mean, it, it's the most ironic thing to think that, you know, I don't have time to, to plant the seeds of happiness. I'm too busy doing what? <laughs> like, what would we be doing that would be more important than actually cultivating directly, immediately cultivating, planting the seeds, watering the seeds, cultivating happiness? Why wouldn't we be doing it? So what is it for us? Do we really have doubt that the development, cultivation of these three attitudes of letting go, kindness and compassion, don't actually lead to happiness? Is that it? Or maybe we think they do, but we don't feel like, yeah, it may be true for other people, but I just have too much negative conditioning. You should hear about my origin story, my you know, my parents or, you know, the culture I was raised in. So that won't work for me. It works maybe for others, but not for me. So we we have this mythology of like I'm special. I'm especially bad or I'm especially doomed, fated to be unhappy, screwed. We have these kind of stories that mostly go unexamined. And even let's say the Buddha was wrong or I'm wrong in saying that these attitudes, these three attitudes, this is the second part of the Eightfold Path the Buddha taught. So the first third of the path is wisdom. It's not necessarily, necessarily linear. but So the wisdom category has right view and right attitude. So the three attitudes I've been talking about. That's the wisdom part of the path. And then there's the sila, the ethical conduct, conduct part, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. And then there's the sort of mental development, heart development, samadhi it's called. And that's wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So the first part is all about purifying our view, our understanding. The second part is all about purifying our action in the world, our relationships, And the last part is about purifying the mind. It's not really the last part. It's really more of a circle, right? So we're 
we're using awareness, this sort of discerning, this balanced and discerning quality of the mind, comprehending part of the mind, to purify view, purify our actions, and to pure our, our relations, our relatedness, and to purify the mind itself, the activity of the mind itself. So we're interested in the ecology of the mind, the ecology of our relationships, and then very specifically the ecology of our understanding. Out of what view do we construct our world? What is the underlying view or premise that the mind operates under? Now, you know, just the short of it is the Buddha recognized that mostly we operate this with this unquestioned view of self as a permanent entity apart that stands apart from everything else. There's me, right? And then I guess it's all of you and everything else out there. And that view goes unquestioned. So now we're starting to bring awareness to that, this discerning awareness. And just on a pragmatic level, it's not about like, I'm going to figure out what's actually true in some metaphysical sense. It's more about pragmatically, does that attitude help? Does it lead to happiness? Because if I have the attitude of the underlying view of self, then the attitudes I'm going to have are going to be more like greed because the self has some needs, right? It wants safety and it wants to be loved, wants people to like me and to include me, think I'm special, to to basically get my story, so they can repeat it back to me, and they get better get it right. You know how, you know that when people like you're in a crowd and someone's telling your story and they don't get it right. No, no, no. That's not who I am. It's like I'll send you the memo. You, you need to get it right. It's like we're so attached, like like protecting our brand. It's like the corporations that have you know a team of corporate lawyers to protect their brand. They don't want anybody messing with their brand. And it's a little bit that same way. We've got this self-story. So then the attitudes that dominate the mind are greed and fear and aversion, right? Because there's something, seemingly something to protect, me, somebody that has needs, somebody that sees the world in terms of threats that need to be eliminated or defended against. So these three right attitudes, the attitude of letting go, renunciation, being generous, not stingy, the attitude of kindness, the attitude of compassion, they don't flow out of a sense of separate self. What what view, what understanding do they flow out of? So, you know, in, in Buddhism, the view, you know, to give it a name, we have the view that it's nature, this co-arising of all things, everything arising out of causes, overlapping causes and conditions, innumerable webs of causality lawfully, complica- in a complicated way, but lawfully unfolding, not maybe too complicated that we can predict what's going to unfold, But when we look carefully, wherever we look at any little piece of it, 
we see that it's a conditional or a lawful unfolding. And there's no center to nature, right? Just like the weather we had today, there's no center to it. We can talk about the weather, we can describe it in the same way I can describe you, I can describe Megan, I can describe Stan or Lewis or anybody in the room that I know. I can describe them. I can actually go into great detail in the description of some of the people in this room. In the same way I could describe the weather, I could describe the ecology of Minneapolis, but there's no center, even though that has characteristics, the weather today has characteristics, there's no center to it. There's no, like, we can't point. I mean, we can kind of say, uh, it's like this. And the same thing with a person. We think that there's a, you know, I can point to Stan and kind of get to the essence of Stan. But we just find, like even when you observe your personality, like if you just review in your mind how it was for you today. Now, normally, like in conventional language, we say, well, I did this, I was like this, I was feeling this earlier today, and then, I, then this happened, I felt this other way. But when we're a little bit more honest, a little bit more direct, what we see is that there, in any given moment, there are these different patterns, you know, of the personality that are active, that have, you know, were latent, but then something happened and triggered, brought them online. And, and they're like overlapping patterns, and some maybe will dominate the moment. Maybe my defensiveness is really strongly triggered now and acting itself out, or maybe the kind mark pattern is been activated and there's a nice gentleness and sweetness. But these patterns, there's not one pattern that's marked. They're just different patterns with different amount of momentum that arise due to different kinds of triggers or causes, right? Isn't that what we actually, like in hindsight, reviewing the day, isn't that what we actually noticed? The mind remembered that, that triggered this, that mood or that psychological pattern, personality pattern interacted with the world, which set in motion these other things, which came back and triggered this other pattern, you know, or these other three patterns, and this pattern, you know, played off of that pattern. So it's, I'm not saying it's simple, it's quite complicated often, the dance of all these different patterns. And it's not just the internal patterns, it's we're interacting with external patterns, other human beings and their personality patterns and the other things that are happening around us, the weather, the food we eat, all the other influences, the pollution we breathe, it all affects how it all unfolds. So the more we see, like you can just call this view the view of nature. So either there's a separate permanent self that's frightened, wants to control, wants to get rid of, wants to possess and hold tight and own you're my partner that's my house this is my job I get to sit on the platform you know we have these and then we get defended about all of these things you know and then when somebody yawns it feels personal like what the talk's not interesting And we can get tight about these things. That's from the self-view. 
But when we see it as nature, even though the personality doesn't, like when I, when the mind is operating with that understanding, that view of nature, doesn't change the personality, there's still the defensiveness, but now the arising of defensiveness or the arising of some wholesome quality like kindness, it's just seen as nature, not like it refers back to some essence of mark that needs something, needs to be defended, needs to get, get rid of. doesn't believe that anymore. Right? It's just, oh, there's that fear. There's that tightness being known. There's that self-consciousness being felt. There's that joy. There's that love. There's that, it's just that thing being known. The mind, the knowing mind, awareness knows that. You see, it really matters the kind of story we tell ourselves. You know, as we inevitably, as the mind inevitably narrates this life back, you know, the story of this life back to itself, it really matters the kind of story the mind is telling itself. Does it star this entity that stands apart, this imagined, constructed entity that stands apart from everything? The oh, poor me, the special me, or the whatever me you kind of star you have in your story, you know, whatever that is? Or are we telling a story that is all about no center, just the activity of causes and conditions, internally, externally, dancing, interacting, interdependent? And then we see with that view, when we practice that view, then the attitudes, that's how we find these attitudes of letting go. Because attachment doesn't make sense. Getting fixed on my opinion, getting identified, that only makes sense when there's a somebody who wants to be right. I mean, it's so interesting when you know, you, we catch our mind kind of locking in, wait a minute, I think you're wrong. I think it's, you know, and you're getting in this tug of war with somebody about, you know, the right versus the wrong. And then to realize, like, I don't need to have a fixed view. I mean, it's so totally okay to have an opinion. You know, if I had a vote, I'd vote this way. But we don't have to be dependent on being right, or we don't even need to be dependent on knowing. It's like you can just check right now. We all have a lot of opinions about politics, about racial injustice, about you know the how we look, body image, what we think about ourselves. We have lots of thoughts about things. You know whether veganism is the way to go or it's unnatural to be eating that much soy. We should be eating, you know humanely raised, pasture grazing, four-legged creatures, you know, whatever opinions we might have. But you see, as soon as we just relax in the moment, all of that meaning-making, all that conceptualizing, all that opinion-generating, it just ceases. You have to like, the thinking mind has to stay really busy to maintain its views. You know, and if you just sort of settle into the experience of embodiment or open to the sound of the fan blowing, 
or feel the coolness of the fall air. You see how independent the mind is of that conceptual meaning? Like to be a human being, a reasonable human being, a skillful human being right now, does your mind need to be fixed on any conceptual meaning? Anything whatsoever. Like even the idea that I'm, I identify as a straight male or I'm 58 years old or we don't really need, I'm in Minneapolis, we don't need those concepts. The mind doesn't need to be fixed on any of that. It seems important, doesn't it? From the point of view of the story, the story seems important. But from the point of view of being mindfully aware, being intimate, being present, we learn that right view or wise view is not having a fixed view, realizing that we can the mind can release its dependence on view and then we see these attitudes naturally arising the kindness isn't an imitation the compassion isn't something forced i know i'm supposed to be compassionate the letting go or the non-attachment isn't something we're doing because we want to be a good buddhist it's just organic it's just what happens when the mind understands living free of fixed views, of fixed stance. So what we place as that is a kind of open space, an empty space, right? And this is not some far out there spiritual experience you'll have when you've done many years of silent retreat practice in your own cave on the shores of Lake Superior, you know, like they say about Milarepa, the great Tibetan saint who turned green from eating nettles because that's all he had for months at a time. No, like I hopefully you felt just when we, you know, when I invited you to reflect. As soon as the mind stops, it's an almost ceaseless activity of meaning making, telling itself a story. When it just is invited to stop, drop in the moment, feel the body sitting, we can realize the mind does quite fine without conceptual meaning. The world doesn't implode. Like if I don't know who I am in terms of a story or what I'm going to do next or was I good today or not, that the whole world's going to implode. We, because the meaning-making part of the mind is so incessant, we, it feels dangerous for it to cease, for it to just have a natural death in a moment. We think that somehow we'll become dysfunctional when the next moment when we have to talk to somebody that we won't be able. It's like you know, we put it down and we won't be able to pick up concepts again. We won't be able to think. It's like if we don't keep it going, that will be it. But this is a great thing about sitting practice, formal meditation practice, where we... You know, when we use, for example, the breath like we did tonight, breathing in, aware, intimate with the physicality, not the idea of breathing in, not the mental image of breathing in, but just the experience of embodiment, the body breathing in, the body breathing out, right? We're learning to put down the world of the stories, the concepts, the constructions of the thinking mind which means we don't know 
whether we're a good or bad practitioner. We don't know whether the world is going to hell or about to enter a new golden age, right? Because all of that is on the level of story, of concept. Right? You see, like when we're actually just living in this more direct, immediate way, we don't know, we don't have a story that's telling us whether we're good or bad or whether what's happening is good or bad. We're just feeling. And don't assume there's no intelligence without thinking. You know, they've done a lot of studies. This is one of the good things about neuroscience and just some of the psychological um, uh, theories and uh, technologies that allow people to study the mind, that a lot of the... uh, decision-making, you know, like, oh, I've got to sort of figure out how I'm going to do Monday, you know. Maybe I should start now. Why wait to Monday? I can start thinking about how to do Monday now, and then I'll be good at it when Monday actually comes. And it seems like we can't do Monday, let alone Sunday evening, unless we're thinking it through. But what they find with some of these studies is that, that we're actually doing the Sunday evening, and then short interval after that we're figuring out how to do the Sunday evening. That the sort of choice making comes after the choices are made. Right? So this is this is very interesting and you can actually catch this. The neediness of telling yourself a coherent story that explains to seemingly yourself why you did, why you're doing, why you did why you made that choice but it's happening after the doing. It seems, you know, we're just not paying attention enough to notice this lag. That the life operates on its own. The doing, the moving, the choosing doesn't require... The language is really much more about relating with other human beings than operating this life. But we've gotten confused by it. So this is an interesting place, like in terms of what is really a refuge for us, what's dependable. I started with these three attitudes because they're a little bit more obvious, easier for us to tune into, the attitude of letting go. Letting go of any fixed notion. Who knows? That's such a great mantra. Who knows? Maybe not so. You know? We don't really know. And yet we tell ourselves so many stories about things, about ourselves and others in the world, that we pretend that we have certainty. Because it, from an egoic point of view, from a self point of view, it seems more stable to be certain. But it, psychically speaking, it's so much work and it's so stressful to keep imagining we're certain about what we're certain about when the truth is we're not certain at all. Right? We're just not certain about anything. Life is very fluid. Nobody really knows all the twists and turns. Imagine you know, just living the rest of the evening in that space of not knowing. And if the mind constructs a scenario like all of a sudden you, s- 
you catch yourself thinking about what you're going to do when you're home tonight, you know, you realize that's not a truth, that's just a thought. You know, and that thought arises out of causes and conditions. But I don't really know what I'm going to do tonight. I mean, it might look like that thought. It might. But I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, the house could have burnt down. Who knows? You know, the cat could be destroying your favorite piece of furniture right now. (laughs) Or any number of things that could be happening. So to just uh, learn to be interested, learn to be respectful, when you see that attitude of letting go, really get to know it, that the mind doesn't need to be fixed. And generosity is part of this, not not the pretend kind of generosity, like when's the last time you donated at Common Ground? You know, oh yeah, it's been a while, I should do something. That's not generosity, that's, fear or like trying to fit in or trying to, you know, be fit your own idea of who you should be. It usually that kind of generosity comes out of a fixed idea. But when you when there's a natural giving, right, you could hold on, but you let go, you give it away. You've cut the dessert in half, you and your partner are gonna share it. One piece is a little bigger than the other. You could take it because you know he or she's not there right now. <laughs> but you put the bigger piece on their side of the table, and you take the smaller piece, right? And uh, it's just like, from a self point of view, you know, there's like, well, why am I doing that? Because I want the bigger piece. Or maybe you're doing it because you want her to know. So then you'd say, you know, I gave you the bigger piece. Did you notice? <laughs> But to to realize that whatever uh, feeling of me wanting the bigger piece, that's just a feeling. It doesn't actually refer to a reality of a somebody. It's just a habit of wanting the bigger piece or the habit of wanting her to know that you gave her the bigger piece. right? But we don't have to do that. It could just be this like letting go. Just doing, not being stingy, not being tight. Same with the kindness, same with the compassion. So we're really looking for these attitudes as a free flow, not a self-stance. I'm compassionate. I'm not attached. Have you noticed? You know. <laughs> and so it's like an insight. It's a discovery where you just catch generosity or the non-attachment expressing itself because what is it actually it's a force of nature it isn't you being good it's just a quality of the mind a quality of nature expressing itself and part of the mind recognizes it as beautiful that's beautiful not in a prideful egoic way it's actually beautiful when the heart is expressing generosity, letting go in this natural way. It is beautiful. It is worthy of respect. It is a kind of sacred thing to see in yourself or in another human being. It really is beautiful. Or when you see kindness, or when you see compassion. It's the same thing as when you see two squirrels playing in the backyard, or you see, you know, 
you know how you get one weather system at a certain altitude and then another weather system a little bit lower, you know, the clouds are sort of crossing in different directions, or you see some interesting natural phenomenon, and there's a, something beautiful and awe-inspiring about it, but it's not personal, the sunset or the weather, but there's something so real and free about what's happening. And and the heart intuits that. That's why we like being around a waterfall or a river or the surf or the wind blowing through leaves because it, it reminds us like everything's happening on its own. Honey, you do not need to be tight. You do not need to believe the story that you have to live your life. There's a somebody who's got to you know, kind of get itself through existence and then somehow manage the difficult thing of death, you know, and the difficult thing of relationship, and how to do this, and how to do that, it seems really unworkable. Having a body, having relationships, living in a very imperfect culture, you know, which is where we see over and over again, I think it's great that we're seeing it, but it's so disconcerting to see the limitations of our criminal justice and the kind of um, uh, biases that are programmed into our hearts and minds around difference. So humiliating. And the only way that we can really embrace and connect and be skillful in this kind of world is to see that it's not personal. Seeing the impersonal nature is not about disconnecting and saying, well, thank God, it's not my responsibility. It's actually how we take responsibility. Because as long as I'm taking my biases personally, I don't really want to see them. Or I want to pretend that they're not like they are. Or I want to blame somebody. My damn parents, again, you know. (laughs) They made me this way. Or my culture, you know, they, it made me this way. Or we want to pretend that we've done our work so we don't feel burdened by the thought of having to, that there's work to do. But when we see everything as a movement of nature, both the conditioning of our heart and mind, the conditioning around us, all the play of everything, when we see that as nature, actually that we have this enlivened state, this energy to really engage and embrace and participate in how it's all unfolding. Doesn't mean that our participation is going to completely change things, but it means we can give ourselves to this engagement, to this showing up and doing the best we can. And that's beautiful because then the engagement is coming out of letting go and compassion and kindness. And that's what, you know, that's all we can do in the world. We can't demand that the world become a beautiful place, you know, in terms of economic, racial injustice. But we can participate completely in that. Same with things about, things around the environmental crisis. But I'll leave it uh, here so that we have a little bit more time tonight. To hear from folks, feel free also to bring up the instructions around mindfulness of breathing that we started last week. Of course, any comments from your own practice around these three attitudes we've been talking about tonight or questions about 
the practice, the Buddhist teachings that have come to mind. Remember, if you speak up, point the mic like this, right at your mouth, not up and down. So who'd like to begin? What have you been learning? What questions come to mind? Yeah, all the way in the back. It's always nice to say your name, too, as you begin your sharing or your comments. My name is Tom. At the beginning of the talk, I heard you use the words, it's important that we tell good stories about ourselves, something to that effect. Or it matters. Or it matters that we tell good stories about ourselves. And, and toward the end of the talk, I thought what I was hearing was, you know, in the end, we, we don't have any stories to tell. Or there, there is no... Um, that that awareness is absent of a story. What's well, more that in in understanding what I was calling tonight wise view, no fixed view, and the wholesome in, intentions or attitudes that flow out of that—the letting go, the kindness, and the compassion—in doing the practice, then the mind's relationship to storytelling changes. doesn't mean the storytelling is going to go away, but the relationship to storytelling changes. So the stories then become more about how this is all nature. I mean, that's all we've been doing tonight. We've been telling stories, right? So, but the story we're telling is how oppressive it is to think our stories are more than stories, that they point to something real, like me, apart from the world, apart from nature. How oppressive it is when we think stories are pointing to something that is permanent, a permanent entity. And how liberating it is when we realize stories are just stories. Never more, never less. So I think that's really the key. Because we need stories, you know, as social beings. This is the this is really the uh, conduit or the um, sort of lubrication of, of relationship. You know, we're kind of together as a community. We're these intersecting stories that we're telling. And that's, that's not going to change. But when we see how stories can, like the mind's not dependent on stories, then the participation, the activity of storytelling then is more a joy, an expression of compassion and kindness and letting go. A lot of good stories about letting go, the joy of generosity, the joy of letting go, the joy of kindness and compassion. We could tell all kinds of stories. And we could tell all kinds of stories of the tragedy of non-kindness, of hatred, you know, the tragedy of violence, the tragedy of stinginess and greed. Those are good stories to tell. You know how painful it is when we get caught in greed, in fear. Thanks, Tom. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please. Hi, I'm Leah. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that kind of became aware to me is that the stories that I oftentimes tell myself are kind of trying to foreshadow um, in guess what future sufferings might be. And so, you know, like I will be planning 
what I need to do the rest of the day tasks and those, you know, that story about what I'm doing all day is actually creating stress when if I were just being in the present moment, maybe I wouldn't have that much stress or even a situation I might perceive someone you know, reacted to me, you know, gave me a stink eye or something like that. And I'll, I'll create a story on that, which will create the stress and not necessarily the actual incident or even the future moments. So the stress that I feel like I'm experiencing more often is directly based from the stories that aren't necessarily even true. Yeah. Instead, we could be telling us ourselves a story, like whenever the future comes to mind, we could just say, well, whatever that's going to be, maybe it will look like this story that I'm telling myself, but whatever it is that unfolds for me, I'm going to take refuge in letting go and kindness and compassion. I'll find my way and I'll deal with whatever comes. So you can like retell that story instead of, okay, that might happen and I'll deal with it with fear, with tightness, with hatred, with greed, not really wanting controlling energy, something to happen. It's like, no, that hurts. That story actually hurts. I mean, we feel the heaviness, the oppressiveness of that story when the mind's identified with it. We see, oh yeah, this is suffering here and now. Who knows what will be then? But right now, that story, we're basically frightening or uh, scaring ourselves. Yeah, thanks, Leah. Other thoughts? Um, I saw a picture of a tombstone that said, uh, I can't believe I ate all that kale for nothing. (laughs) 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 But, um, no, serious question here. If you're... um, if you have a physical pain that's not related to posture, um, how do you incorporate that into the practice, or better yet, how do you practice with that all day long? Yeah. Well, the first thing is normalizing it with some understanding that in this conditional world where there are many, many causes and conditions, and together that web of causality makes this the way it is now, sometimes it's like this. You know, sometimes the back hurts. Sometimes the affect is depressed. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's hot. Right? So we normalize that sometimes the body's in pain. Sometimes the mind's happy. Sometimes people don't want to be around me. Right? So you just normalize that And then the the question is always a pragmatic one. So, honey, with what attitudes, what attitudes right now would be skillful? You know, what is the functionally skillful way to be relating to this pain? Given that the pain is here, like this now, given that I understand that in this changing world, I'm not in control, and sometimes it will be like this, right? The question is, with what attitude should I relate to this pain? Should I relate with letting go, like letting go of the need to be in control? Should I relate with kindness and compassion? Or should I hate it? Or should I blame? Or should I be afraid of it? Or should I spend my time fantasizing about getting rid of it? You know, I'm gonna do this or do that, and then it will go away, I hope. So it's just really make it pragmatic, like what actually helps? What attitude, when brought to mind 
and used to relate to what's going on is functionally skillful. It's not idealistic at all. These three attitudes you'll find are completely functional in life as it actually is for us, in the mundane details of life. The attitude of letting go or renunciation or uh, generosity, I'm just three words for the same attitude, the attitude of kindness and compassion, you don't really need any other motive force in your heart to live your life. Just see if you need. And if you find another one that you need, it probably fits under one of those three intentions or attitudes. Yeah, and then Tim had a thought, I think. Can you comment about um, the difference between using your breath as a meditation object versus whole body awareness? Yeah, well, in my reading of the Buddhist instructions, uh, initially the breath may be a little bit easier just to give a sort of a more concrete object for the attention to connect with in order to put down the world of thought, right? So, oh yeah, feel the belly expanding. Feel that movement of the abdominal wall. Feel the contraction as the breath is going out. But once there's some steadiness and some continuity there, you might want to relax so that in the knowing of the in-breath, the rising of the belly, knowing of the out-breath, the falling of the belly, you realize the whole body is there. So it's not so much an either-or, whole body, or just the breath. But use the breath, but be aware that the whole body is right there. Because one of the, one of the things about right view, and more specifically present moment awareness, is it is an inclusive experience. So now when you open right now, Tim, to the present moment, whether you're sort of using like you're looking at a black cushion and maybe initially you're collecting the energy of the mind into the present moment by being wholeheartedly aware of the scene of that visual experience. But then when you relax, you realize that you can sustain present moment awareness and realize all the visual objects in the periphery. And not only that, you can continue to sustain, sustain present moment awareness and be aware of the seeing and that sounds are being heard. And the body's being, the sensations of the body are being felt. And any mental activity that may be rolling through the mind, that that's also being known. So, because part of the, um, the discerning quality, the insight quality of the mind, the wisdom quality of the mind, is it's we want it to notice um, what's happening, like in a causal or conditional, the conditional unfolding of the present moment. And so we really need this all-inclusive awareness in order to see how one thing conditions the next, conditions the next. So if we're just interested in concentration, then it's really fine to have a specific anchor But if we're doing more wisdom practice, more insight practice, then this present moment awareness that includes everything. Because the present moment is all right here. Like it's not, it's not quite correct to say like I could either pay attention to seeing you back there or 
hearing the traffic over here or feeling my knee here because all of those different experiences are being known right here in the mind. It's all happening in the mind. And there's a story that's telling me that they're happening in different locations. But the reality of knowing is it's all being known here. And there's only this being known. Like one teacher says, the one point that includes everything. The present moment is the one point, but that one point includes everything that's being known or everything that can be known. It's all right here. If that point seems a little too subtle for you, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Just let go. For some of you it might be useful, but others it might not make so much sense. Maybe time for one more comment. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm Carol. I'm uh, wondering about the attachment to grief and how one lets go of that. Well, generally, the, the letting go of attachment arises when we see that it's suffering. Like in the, I think it's a very useful image. When you see that you're holding a hot pan and it's burning your hands, you let go. So we get attached to grief or other painful experiences because we don't trust the enormity of the feeling. Right? If we feel like it's going to drown us, overwhelm us. But is that in fact true? How do we know? We have to see what happens when we let grief move. It may be in fact really, really painful, but the non-attachment, the not trying to fix it or control it, is liberating. So it's sort of this paradoxical experience where we may be feeling something that's very painful, but the non-fear is very beautiful and liberating at the same time. What is grief when it isn't resisted? What is sadness when it isn't resisted? When no part of the mind and body is tightening up against it. What is that experience of sadness or grief? Yeah, let us know, really, if that if you kind of feel that free movement of grief, that's a nice thing to report to the community. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate our time together. with gratitude for these teachings, all the women, all of the men, all the folks through the centuries that had busy lives, complicated lives, and yet they were able to do the practice to cultivate this continuity of mindful awareness, discover these three wholesome attitudes of mind, and become part of the causes and conditions of passing down the wisdom living a compassionate life. So now it's our turn in our busy lives to do our best to cultivate this practice and to become part of the causes and conditions for real wisdom and love, real freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. Thanks everyone for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.